Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. All right, good evening, everybody. Uh, This is uh, Mark Malloy with Emerging Revolutionary War, uh, and tonight we're uh, joined by a very special guest, uh, historian and archaeologist Damian Shields. Uh, who is uh, actually coming to us live tonight from Ireland. Uh, And I think this is uh, very cool. This is our first international uh, uh, Rev War revelry for uh, the Emerging Revolutionary War show here. Um, And we're we're very happy. This is, uh, you know, this past week, we just uh, celebrated St. Patrick's Day and March here in America's Irish American Heritage Month. So I got my Guinness here and ready to... (laughs) sit down and, and talk about uh, 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 the Irish Rebellion of 1798, uh, the Battle of Vinegar Hill. Um, and this is really exciting for us because there's a lot of international um, components of the American Revolution when it breaks out and it's gonna spread like wildfire all across the globe. Um, you know, most famously with the French Revolution it's gonna, gonna break out in the 1780s. Um, and, but there are numerous rebellions that pop up in revolutions all across the globe. And uh, um, myself having Irish uh, uh, ancestry and having been able to have the, the opportunity to visit Ireland a few times, uh, it was the rebellion that broke out in Ireland in 1798 that's always kind of uh, captured my imagination. I always thought it was fascinating to, to see the, the, the movement that ultimately led to this uh, ultimately a very bloody conflict uh, in the summer of 1798. Um, and, uh, and, and there was a recent book that just came out uh, about Vinegar Hill um, and, the, and the Wexford rebels in 1798. And I saw there was a, a, one of the contributors there was Damien and I've seen him uh, uh, do things with our sister site at Emerging Civil War. And uh, I know he has a, a lot of experience doing all sorts of things on both sides of Ireland and in America. So I thought it was a great opportunity to invite him on here 
uh, talk a little bit about uh, the, the rebellion and then specifically talk about some of the work he's been able to do as an archaeologist uh, as it relates to some of these battles that happened uh, during that rebellion. Uh, so welcome, Damien. If you want to give a, a little background on who you are and, uh, and, and why you're here tonight, that'd be great. Yeah, cheers, Mark. Thanks a million for the invite. It's great to be on. And um, nice to hear as well when we were having our little pre-chat that you have good Limerick roots as well as one of one of the areas in Ireland you have as a Limerick man myself. It's good to, good to hear. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's nice to be on. It's actually the first time in a long time I've been talking to an American audience about the other side of, of what I do, because mainly it usually is about the American Civil War. Um, so yeah, I kind of wear two hats so that my, my history hat is, is Irish America oriented and American Civil War oriented. Um, and I, I suppose uh, the, kind of, the kind of main output I do with that is with, with colleagues of mine, Dr. Catherine Bates and, and uh, Brendan Hamilton, we have a site, irishamericancivilwar.com, where we, we've been running now since 2010. That was where it all went wrong for me with the American Civil War, took over my existence. Um, but yeah, so, so I, I've, um, I've been working on the American Civil War for a long time and, and going back and forth and doing that. But my kind of long time, I work full-time as a historian at the moment, but my long-time career has been as an archaeologist and a, a conflict archaeologist and battlefield archaeologist in Ireland um, and working on all periods from different conflicts, um, per, a lot of 16th and 17th century engagements, um, a, lot, a lot of stuff recently about our own um, War of Independence. Um, actually, I, I should take this opportunity to give a plug if anyone is is really keen to hear more about the archaeology of the Irish War of Independence. We have a free all day online conference next Saturday that you can attend. I can give you the details of that. But um, yeah, so so an awful um, lot of opportunities to try and explore some of these sites. But the biggest one that that was ever conducted in Ireland was the, this Vinegar Hill. Um, survey that we did, um, which produced really remarkable results. I suppose I should just say, like, we have a bit of a different relationship with our battlefields in Ireland here. So say where, where you might be used to seeing incredibly well-preserved sites like Gettysburg, for example, um, Ireland doesn't preserve its battlefields. So um, in fact, there's only one small portion of a battlefield called the Boyne, which um, ha has a bit of state ownership to it. So most of the rest of them are, are just ordinary sites, um, so, uh, ordinary fields um, that don't, in, in many cases, attract an awful lot of attention. Vinegar Hill does, though, but uh, we'll get into that, I'm sure. But um, they, yeah. Are, so that, are most of them privately owned? or Yeah. So a lot of them would have been built over. A lot of them are farmland. So so a lot of the genesis of, say, the work that we did, and we'll, be, we'll maybe have a look at a couple of things later, but um, we're, we're part of an effort by the state to try and determine wh where our battlefields are, what's left of them, and what might be there from a, a kind of a preservation um, perspective and it's a project um, I ran the archaeological side side of it um, and, and colleagues in Enniclan um, uh, ran the historical side of that we, we were effectively looking for every battlefield in Ireland between the 8th and 18th century so that, that was that was when I first started looking at Vinegar Hill in, in, in close detail and the battles in 1798 so it was a pretty big remit <laughs> so yeah uh, well, it's I mean, 15 years ago, and we're about to publish the 1798 volume, hopefully in the not too distant future. So, that oh, one. really? I mean, I just yeah. think it's amazing, you know, and, and we often talk about that here in the United States is, uh, you know, places like 
Manassas are unique and that there are two battlefields on the same on the same location. But when you're talking about centuries of conflict, like you're talking about, there's got to be numerous layers at numerous places, I'd imagine. So precisely, and as you know yourself, Mark, like Ireland is a small island. It's it's kind of compact, you know. It's so, so so there's a lot of this kind of material everywhere but it, it is actually among our most vulnerable because it's often been you know we it, it's easy to protect the big castle if it's sitting in the middle of a field because you, you can see it a, a lot of this the problem that we've had with the battlefield stuff is is that you can't really see it um you know it's not it's as opposed to the untrained eye it, they just look like fields um that that was one of the interesting things about things like this, this project looking at 1798 is we saw the degree to which the fields that you're looking at and everything in the fields was actually a major part of the engagements in 1798 the landscape that's that's there uh, has survived pretty well in most cases so yeah it's um it was nice to kind of shed a light on it. and and wexford county council who who funded the local authority who funded the work down at vinegar hill like have done an incredible job in kind of showcasing what's possible with the book that that you were just showing everyone there uh, because yeah. that was a, a major project that didn't just look at archaeology, it's folklore, it's history, it's, it's, it's a whole load of different things. Yeah, no. Um, and yeah, going down to Enniscorthy, they, they, they have a great little uh, uh, museum down there, too. Yeah. The eight Rebellion Center. Um, that is it interprets some of this this history it's super yeah super yeah no but let, well let's so let, uh, tell us a little bit about you know yeah 17 1798 ireland so obviously there's conflict between you know the irish and the english going back hundreds and hundreds of years where, where does 1798 fit into the the timeline of Irish history here. Yeah, well, I suppose to kind of give it a bit of a background and to tie it to America as well. I mean, sometimes we can think of places as if they're they're very isolated in this period, but but really it's it's a very international context in the 18th century. Um, and it, it often gets left out of say the revolutionary story, but for example, Ireland was a major, major um if, if you like staging post for the British in relation to, to the American Revolution. So I'm looking out, if, if it wasn't dark, I would be looking out at Cork Harbour, which is where the fleet left every year to resupply New York during the revolution. This was like the main base for, for resupplying of those troops. Um, and, and you can almost take it back. So, so the, the, the American Revolution breaks out and people in Europe are looking at this, as we know, um, and kind of going, oh, I wouldn't mind a bit of that myself. Um, and and you, you see in Ireland, which is used for a long period of time as, as a base for British troops. So a significant number of British troops are moved out of Ireland to um, North America, right, to, 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 to fight. Um, and you see a kind of a building up of a group called the Irish Volunteers, like kind of a local force um, at this period to try and take over. Um, some of the military function in the state and some elements of that start to get a bit radicalized the, the, um, by what's going on in America. The government, I suppose, at the time, you would have to say there's a period where the, the, what's called the penal laws are enforced. So there isn't complete freedom of worship for Catholics. It had been easing through this period of the 18th century, but those in power were Protestants, uh, so the Protestant ascendancy. Um, so you have a disaffected Catholic class. But as people begin to look at America and then particularly the French Revolution, which itself, of course, is inspired when the French Revolution breaks out in 1789, there's an awful lot of people um, 
if you like in the kind of middle and upper classes looking looking at what's going on and beginning to kind of think about republican ideals um and then in 1791 a group of these people form the a society called the united irishman society and what was very special about it was that it wasn't um broken down along religious lines, particularly. The earliest members were Presbyterians. So you have a lot of what would be called Ulster Scots, who of course played an enormous role themselves in the revolution, um, are involved in this society. Um, you have a lot of Protestants uh, involved in it as well. Um, and then you have Catholics too. So, so you have some of the similar issues of, so there's alternate taxation. This is something I'm sure, <laughs> that I, I believe it was a bit of a problem in, in America as well for some people, um, things like tax. So, so um, everyone kind of is beginning to look, well, in this society towards um, the ideals of republicanism. Um, and that society gains a lot of traction um, among different levels of society. Um, it, it sets itself up in a very kind of localized way. So it's a national society, but as, as the 1790s progress and the English, the British war um, with revolutionary France comes to the fore in the 1790s, um, it's driven underground, this organization. So originally a kind of a debating site is driven underground and it becomes increasingly militarized as the 1790s continue. It founds itself on you know, local towns would have their own little section and then if they would report to the people in the county, which is the equivalent of a state and, and, and so on up the chain. So it was designed to be this kind of regional force that could rise. Um, and things came to a head in 1796, first of all, um, when it, it was per persuaded, the French were persuaded to launch an invasion of Ireland. And they actually sent 15,000 troops to Ireland um, who got all the way into a place called Bantry Bay down in West Cork, but the wind and the weather prevented them from landing. They were literally just offshore, 15,000 um, odd men. Um, some of them had been blown off course, but most of them were there. Um, and they had to return to France. Um, they left behind quite famously an, uh, an admiral's launch um, or a small launch from, from one of their boats, um, which is still preserved in the National Museum of Ireland and is supposed to be the oldest French naval vessel in the world surviving because the rest of the French Navy um, has, has issues at places like Trafalgar. Um, but so this really, 1796 and the almost French landing really sets everything off. And so there's a real effort to try and de-arm the population and to fully suppress the United Irishmen. Um, and then eventually in, in 1798, um, in May of 1798, the rising starts. So that, that, that's the kind of background to where, where it led. Um, and there was, there's a whole load of like interesting sidelines. One of the leaders of the United Irishmen was a guy called Wolf Tone, who had to flee Ireland in the early 1790s. Um, and he, one, he goes to America. Um, that's where he goes. Um, uh, and I have to be, I have to be honest, he, he didn't like America very much. Um, you would think because he shared a lot of the same ideals, he would love it. I think he was in Philadelphia he was spending time with. But his major concern, it seems, during his entire time in exile in America was that his daughter would someday end up marrying an American. He was terrified of this prospect. So <laughs> even though they shared, even though they shared a lot of the ideals, he doesn't seem to have, have had much time for America. He was much more into France. But uh, so, but so, but so you see these links back and forth, the influences from even the war actually being underway 
in, in America back and forth as to how it builds towards what happened in 1798. Yeah, no, and, and I mean, you mentioned Wolfton. I think he's just an interesting character. And yeah, I've read some of his autobiography where he talks about being yeah over in, in Philadelphia. I yeah. think he meets George Washington while he's there too. Just kind of yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Two, uh, two minds. And yeah, I don't think, I think he called Washington a high-flying aristocrat or something. Uh, yeah, he, he really didn't like it. He really did not <laughs> like it. And his his wife, who was actually ends up there herself for decades in the 19th century, doesn't like it either. She, she's always giving out about it. She thinks they'd be a bit more grateful. For, but anyway, it yeah. worked. <laughs> yeah, so. But, but it's uh, in, in the, the, the tying to the French Revolution is also really interesting because obviously, yeah, France being a major uh, um, Catholic uh uh, monarch yeah. you're living under and uh and, and just just this whole time period i think a lot of people are surprised by the um you know the united irishmen not you know i think it's typically viewed as catholics versus protestant and there's a, mm. obviously a very long history of that in uh in ireland but uh this was a, an attempt to break that mold and uh and all yeah and unite against uh great britain which was revolutionary uh in itself uh, at that time absolutely absolutely it was a real moment um and you would wonder had it been successful what might have been in terms of you know the subsequent history um of of the island but the the, the it was a cer certainly a, a kind of a, a key point in time and ireland had you know look into france i mean the any irish rebels if you like had a long tradition of looking to the continent for whoever was deemed to be Britain's number one enemy. It, it, for example, in, in the 16th and 17th century, it was to Spain that Ireland traditionally turned. But in the 18th century, it was France. Yeah. Um, consistently France tr through the Jacobite period and, and on through the, the, the Seven Years' War and everything and all that. So so um, it's very interesting. And, and it kind of continues, like, not to get... I promise I won't talk about the American Civil War after this, but Thomas Francis Marr, who, who founds the Irish Brigade, he goes to France. He's a rebel leader in 1848. They look back at 1798. He goes to France and he brings back a, a, a flag based on the French model, which is today the Irish national flag. Yeah, so, so that kind of link is amazing, you know. No, you know, yeah, yeah, like you said, yeah, Great Britain's, when Great Britain's in trouble, right, that's the opportunity for, yeah. for Ireland, and and obviously, you know, the, the France helped America secure our independence during our revolution, of course, that was the monarchy at that time, but, uh, but it, you know, it's amazing, too, you know, when you realize that the Navy doesn't have to go across the whole ocean to, to go in and be right in Ireland, they'd be able to support that and I feel like that's also yeah what Wolf Tone spends most of his time during this during this rebellion trying to get that foreign aid uh that's right yeah yeah um, and is himself captured late in the very late in the rebellion off the coast of Donegal trying to bring more French troops in um yeah. something that ultimately ends leads to his death um so yeah this kind of and I mean you, you will see it from an archaeological perspective around Ireland is the fear and there is a constant fear that Ireland can be used as a backdoor by enemies of Britain to invade and that is what the Spanish tried to do and it's what the French attempt to do as well and so you see during these invasion scares particularly in the 1790s and again it happens again with Napoleon Bonaparte in the early 19th century there's a, a big building phase of fortifications so like Cork Harbour where I am here now first gets properly fortified during the American Revolution because of a fear 
of French and American ships potentially attacking bases here. And that sort of fortification just ramps up as the, the ongoing conflict with France that kind of continues all on and off during the revolutionary and the Napoleonic Wars. Um, these gun towers are built, Martello towers all around the coast, signal towers are built all around the coast to try and alert of a French invasion. So it, it's this kind of years and years of a threat. Um, we sometimes, we can look back now and go, well, it, it didn't happen, but um, to the extent that they were worried, but they were very worried that it was going to happen. And, and you can see that everywhere around the island today. It, just as a as a historian of the American War of Independence, it, it, it you quickly realize that yeah, when France gets involved in our war, the entire British strategy changes because that is their their true fear of uh, is a major world power like that, and you can see it you know, and I use you know these rebellions of these other places uh, you know as soon as France gets involved. It's things start to get serious uh, yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah and, and the, the potential the potential to, to really impact on on their home waters is is a massive threat to them um so well, yeah it completely uh, influences the response and so uh you know before we talked you were showing me some some images uh, uh maybe you want to show us some of the uh the connections uh you're you showing me some of the connections of the uh, the revolutionary war yeah, um, yeah. I'll, I'll. Hopefully, this yeah. works now, like it did. You can see that, yeah. It's yeah. that's. Yeah. So, um, uh, if I can get it to flick forward, so um, yeah, I'll I'll flip on to so some of the links. So, the the seventy ninety eight rebellion is a really important one for anyone who's interested. I think in the American Revolutionary War and then in, interested in the subsequent Napoleonic Wars. It doesn't get much of a. It doesn't get, I think, what it deserves to get, it, particularly from, from the, 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 the viewpoint of its use for development of British tactics that are used later, say, in the peninsula and fighting Napoleon and stuff. So you have this kind of interesting mix in 1798 of British officers who had fought in the revolution. And then these kind of the younger ones are coming through who, who are going to go on to become quite famous fighting Napoleon's France. But like just, just some of the... The, the, and these are specifically looking at generals who are um, engaged in Vinegar Hill, in the in the move towards Vinegar Hill and that kind of crescendo of the rebellion in Wexford, which we'll talk about um, in, in a moment, maybe. But like the, these guys had all been in the American Revolution, most of them. Uh, Jared Lake, who, who commands, is the overall command at Vinegar Hill, is in North Carolina and Yorktown. Um, Francis Needham is at Yorktown. Henry Johnson, who fights outside in Escorty, is all over the place as well. Um, Loftus um, is 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 in different locations. He apparently, according to one account, whether it's apocryphal or not, uh, had an opportunity at one occasion to capture George Washington, but didn't. Um, <laughs> General jo General John Moore, who becomes exceptionally famous um, afterwards, also served as an officer in, in, in the revolution in the 82nd Regiment of Foot. He, he, he's generally seen as the father of light infantry tactics, um, and he dies in the retreat from Coruña fighting the French. But of course, I don't know if anyone um, of... of um, uh, has heard of this guy Cornwallis, but uh, I, he 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 was he was apparently involved in the American Revolution in some some degree. But uh, when the seventeen ninety eight rebellion breaks out, he is Lord Lieutenant and Commander in Chief in Ireland. Um, but there's an interesting there's an interesting connection on the other side as well because one of the leading United Irishmen is a guy called Lord Edward Fitzgerald. And he had also fought in the, the revolution and he is influenced by what he experiences 
in America. Um, he was aide de camp to Lord Rawdon. He, he was really badly wounded um, in, in um, the Carolinas in 1781. And he was carried off the field. This is a fascinating story. He was carried off the field by an escaped African-American, um, formerly enslaved man. Um, and then he, he brought him back to Ireland with him and he lived with him. They were, they were um, um, close friends for many years afterwards. Um, they, they, um, he, Tony Small was his name. Um, he lived with the family for quite a, a length of time. And Lord Edward Fitzgerald, as the rebellion is just breaking out, the, the rebellion is launched because there is British intelligence that it's about to happen in Dublin and they move to arrest a lot of their leaders. Lord Edward Fitzgerald is mortally wounded while he's he's being arrested. Um, so he, he's one of the kind of big names to, to, to lose their life. Um, but this is a painting that um, he had commissioned of Tony Small. So, so, so you can see the links, these amazing links back and forth um, through, um, through that conflict, through, through what was going on in America. It's, it's the same personalities um, who, who were involved in it. No, that's a that's an amazing story and tied to yeah the actual battlefields of the the Revolutionary War here in America, um, and you know I think yeah Lord Edward Fitzgerald is a perfect example of showing the um, you know the really how diverse the United Irishmen were in the sense that you have you know such a uh, a famous person taking on the cause of the United Irishmen and. And you, you're right, you know, early on, you know, it's almost like, you know, I think all the the, the, the leaders are basically sold out early on um, and all captured or... Um, Precisely. It's probably a good time when I just, I'll go back to this map, but, but in terms of how it develops, um, and I'll be brief here because, but, but... So as I, I was mentioning, the, the way it was structured was so, so it's it's quite local units that are designed to effectively then spread around the, the country. So so they get word and they rise and then the, the people in the next town rise and the people in the next town rise. And so the whole plan for the 1798 rebellion was that Dublin would be the centre of it. And the intention was that Dublin would start the rising. The mail coaches were to be um, uh, intercepted and that was the, the, the out of Dublin and that was to be the signal for the entire country to rise, the United Irishmen across the country. But it is, if you like, abortive in its early stages because of the knowledge that the, the, the administration get of the Dublin rising. And so they're able to immediately suppress that before it even really starts. They arrest a lot of the leaders. And so people are confused as to whether the rising is happening or it isn't happening. Um, initially, in, in late May of 1798, the counties around Dublin, um, so Kildare and Meath, they rise. Uh, and so United, there are battles fought um, in those counties. Um, and, and it's worth pointing out at this stage that most of the fighting is Irish versus Irish. Um, we, we, we have a tendency, particularly in Ireland, we always go, well, there's the Irish and then there's the British side. But most of the British side in this are Irish militia um, as well, right? So, so, so there's, a, 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 there's a number of Scots, um, units as well that have been brought in, fencible units, etc. Uh, and there are some British regulars who come in as war extends. But but because the rising spreads to Kildare and Meath, but it's almost, it's quickly crushed there. there there's a, a battle, for example, at the famous Hill of Tara, which is a very famous um, site in Ireland. 
Um, and it, it kind of, it moves up the Presbyterians rise in, in Antrim and down in the northeast of Ireland. Um, but it, again, they fight a, a number of battles there, but it's put down. So it's kind of happening sporadically around the country. But the area that really is the most significant of all is County Wexford, that place just down in the southeast you can see on this map. Wexford rises in late May and uh, South Wicklow as well. And they have an extraordinary success quite quickly. They very soon in a number of key battles push government troops out of that county, that, that area of South Wexford. So it, it becomes the Wexford Republic, as it's known, uh, really, really successful. But because they're everywhere else, it's not working. Eventually, the government is able to surround the county. The, the, the uh, Wexford United Irishmen fought a couple of battles, one of which we'll talk about in a second at New Ross, another at Arklow, to try and spread the battle outside of the county, but they are defeated. And eventually, the administration sends different columns of government troops under the generals we were just looking at there into different parts of Wexford. And they move in to Vinegar Hill, which is their main encampment. Um, and that's why that then is the decisive battle of the 1798 rebellion, um, which ends in government victory. Um, but it, it kind of staggers on the rebellion. There, there's a couple of battles fought as guys, um, if you like, tr try and get away from Wexford. The French arrive again, but they come in August. The rebellion has been crushed, if you like, in June 1798. And the French land over on the west coast of Ireland with a thousand men in August and have a couple of initial, they're joined by, by a few thousand locals. Um, they have a couple of initial successful engagements, but are eventually themselves defeated um, and surrender. Um, uh, more troops come in then after that, coming in, that's where Wolf Tone um, uh, gets captured up off the coast, northwest coast of Donegal. So it's all a bit sporadic and spread out, and it just allowed the administration to move around and defeat it in detail, if you like. But Wexford for one month, was the absolute seat um, of, of it all. And it, it saw incredible carnage during that time. Thousands of people lost their lives there. It was, it was a bitter, bitter conflict. Um, um, and it had a significant aftermath. Um, I don't, yeah, we, we, it has an international aftermath. Before we go into the archaeological side of things, I'll just um, move, move on to that. So it, 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 its legacy continues and it's again it's interesting to consider how it Im impacts once again its connections with america so significant numbers of united irishmen some of them end up for example being sold into prussian military service and napoleon manages to pick them up and they end up serving with napoleon others are sent to australia the image on the right of this here is a battle outside sydney in australia in 1804 which is largely united irishmen um, many of them were United Irishmen who fought there. It's actually often called the Battle of Vinegar Hill. Um, as many of you will know, there are areas all over the United States that are called Vinegar Hill, and they are all named after the Battle of Vinegar Hill. They, they, they uh, tended to be Irish communities. This image on the left is one I just took um, a few months ago on the Brooklyn Bridge. So the Vinegar Hill area of uh, Brooklyn is commemorated on that. And th th that's so I Irish... The Irish diaspora and the people Irish in Ireland immediately started to look at Vinegar Hill as this major event, and it becomes this kind of flag that they wave um, all the way through until eventual uh, independence in, in the early 20th century. 
and they have a big impact on the War of 1812, which I know you've discussed um, on here before. Um, Alan Taylor's book, which is great on it, he even has Irish rebels in the, the subtitle of his Civil War of 1812 because there are so many Irish, uh, ex-United Irishmen involved in that conflict. So it has that really interesting um, dynamic, both before and after. No, I think, uh, I mean, something that's, stood out to me. I mean, when you talk about this whole rebellion also being in many ways a civil war uh, is something that we always run into in the American Revolution yeah. in, uh, in, in very much a similar way uh, that uh, uh, a lot of people don't realize how much of this was was brother versus brother. Uh, you also talk about, yeah, just the, the massive amount of, uh, of death that occurs during this rebellion. It's a uh, it's pretty bloody, and I think that's usually, you know, what happens when, you know, there's a, yes. a war and, you know, numerous atrocities and all sorts of uh, uh, just awful yeah. things that happen throughout the, 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 the rebellion. And, you know, you talk about the legacy of this, too, you know, I mean, I, you know, as a, a purveyor of listening to lots of Irish music, uh, uh, references to 98. <laughs> And Vinegar Hill are are constant throughout that. Um, completely, so, completely, yeah. Uh, it's so significant as that root. If if you look at any of the Irish rebellions afterwards, the eighteen forty eight rebellion, which is a, a major impact, if you like, on Irish in the Civil War in, in terms of the number a number of leaders who go out. Eighteen sixty seven rising, nineteen sixteen, and they're all looking back. So even even actually in the Civil War again, I, I know I promised this is terrible. I've I've I completely broken my promise about the Civil War, but um, some of when when Irish are are mobilizing in the Civil War in certain places, they, they are referencing seventeen ninety eight as well, um, talking about it. So and seeing the equivalency. So it's very very significant in terms of its memory for Irish nationalism. Yes. And, uh, you know, I got to say, you know, when I went to the uh, the 1798 center there in uh, Enniscorthy, uh, the, the thing that struck me the most was, uh, I think, near the end of the exhibits, there's a list of uh, leaders of the the 1798 rebellion and what happened to them. And it is executed, executed, exiled, 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 executed, exiled, 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 executed. Through the whole list of them, yeah. I mean, it was not only was it brutally put down, but those who are exiled, like you mentioned here, um, uh, uh, Australia, you know, here in America. I mean, I, I many of these these people who took part in this, uh, they may leave, but then they're probably going to maintain that 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 memory of, of what they just took part in, um, and then also just the sheer brutality of stomping out rebellion. Great Britain doesn't mess around with that and it often makes me think about what would have happened to many of the american revolution leaders had yeah many of them been captured or uh, suppressed yeah I'm, I'm, and i mean it's one of the things it's worth noting about wexford so there are atrocities committed on both sides and, and there is a bit of a legacy of it in an irish context in it, it normally and and like as, as we pointed out earlier there was Protestants, Presbyterians, and Catholics all together in this, uh, but there, I think it, it would be wrong to say that there wasn't some sort of religious dynamic as well. And religious wars in Ireland have been going on for quite a long time, and and they religious wars tend to be particularly bloody. Um, and and uh, it, it kind of it kind of goes down to how loyalists were treated. So they tend to be referred to as loyalists in Wexford, but the loyalists did tend to be Protestant in Wexford. Um, although although many of the leaders in Wexford were Protestant as well, but so there, there was um, a massacre after we, we we'll be touching on the Battle of New Ross 
um, a massacre of a number of Protestants where they were burnt to death in a barn, loyalist Protestants called Skull Bog, which became very notorious. Um, when um, United Irishmen heard that government troops were burning hospitals, which United Irishmen in them in the town of New Ross, one of them set fire to the, to, to the house and killed them. In Wexford, which was taken early um, by the United Irishmen um, in Wexford town, um, they, they began to execute some people at Wexford Bridge, but then when it was taken back, a lot of the leaders and other United Irishmen were executed at Wexford Bridge, so, so hang, hanged off the side of it. So, so there's this kind of recrimination and counter-strike that's going on all the time um, that kind of leaves leaves a, a particularly nasty taste in the mouth, I think, for anyone who must have been involved in that level. It, it was for those who were just caught up in it, as is often the case with these sort of conflicts, if, if you had no um, no skin in the game for, for either side, it was unbelievably dangerous to be wandering around a county like Wexford in the summer of that year um, because anything could happen to you. Um, there are notorious government um, efforts at repression, you know, th things like pitch capping guys where they put tar on their heads and, and things like this um, that were going on as well. So, so really, really brutal stuff. Yeah. Well, let's uh, uh, talk a little bit about, yeah, Vinegar Hill and, and, and some of the work you all done down there. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's a couple of sites. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fly through some slides, but a, a lot of, I, I, there's two sites I want to talk to you about in relation to the archaeology of it, but um, I, I'll kind of just skip over, I think, the kind of, um, the, 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 a lot of the kind of background stuff on, on different types of conflict archaeology that have been done. But so as an archaeologist, I mean, the thing we're trying to do is identify traces on the ground. And um, we did this Irish battlefields project that I was referring to earlier on um, that, that was um, commissioned by the Irish government to try and identify Irish battles. And that was kind of the first time we looked at 1798. I was working with a company called Headland Archaeology and historians called Enniclan. And so we were trying to identify the extent of these battles, what might be left and everything. Um, and of course, we know they're far more than just the areas of engagement. There are all sorts of elements of them that we were looking at, like approach routes, retreat routes. So the image you see here on the right is where um, in 1798, uh, John Moore, who again becomes famous later, um, they, he marches down this avenue to, before fighting the Battle of Fuchs Mills, um, where he had green jacketed riflemen of the 60th Royal American Rifles, who were nearly all Germans. <laughs> but um, are seen as uh, there's there's all there's always German slash Hessians and stuff as well in, in in all these conflicts at this period, um, so um, we we were looking to see how they changed. That this is kind of the brief that we were looking in in these. Like, is it a completely different landscape now? Has it been built up? Um, has land been drained? You know, has a boggy area that might have been a key element of an of a of an engagement disappeared? Um, and the way we did it is by looking at primary accounts um, and, and walking the ground and trying to familiarize ourselves a bit with the way the military operated then um, and, and trying to find information in primary accounts. And this has been done on many American revolutionary battlefields with enormous success, but looking at, looking at um, primary accounts and, and where they might say we marched to this hill or we marched here, or we marched there. Um, and I want to just talk about as a prelude, how, Sometimes an awful small amount of archaeological information can tell you an awful lot. 
Um, so before Vinegar Hill started, there was a, this battle at New Ross. So ba New, New Ross is a large town in County Wexford. And this is the early, if you like, thus far victorious United Irishmen attempting to push through and out of the county um, at New, New Ross. And there's some serious numbers um, being involved here, around 10 to 15,000 men, um, are, are, but they're very poorly armed. So effectively, what you, what you have are armed civilians, really. Very few of these, these people have, have military experience. The vast bulk of them are armed with this pike, which is the kind of symbolic weapon of the 1798 rebellion. Um, the town is held by Johnson, who's a veteran of the Revolutionary War. He only has about 2,000 guys, but they have a bit more training. Um, and I won't go into big detail, but the battle goes on all day long. Um, it is fought in the streets of the town. It is savage and brutal. There's an image you see here of United Irishmen running straight up into the mouth of an artillery piece, which obviously then discharges. Um, but when we done our initial survey, and this is a, from uh, just a kind of some of the key movements of that battle, the, the uh, old town walls are shown on, on, on the map here um, and the blue in the United Irishmen attack. Um, it, it ends in a government victory. They eventually counterattack um, and take back the town, having lost the majority of it. Um, but when we were doing our initial archaeological analysis, um, we highlighted the greenfield area and said, well, if anything is ever done there, they might find something, okay? Um, and if you just, you see on this map where it says Cloney's failed attack on Irish town, um, just on the right of the screen, is over a green area. And a, a number of years after we'd done that initial analysis that identified that as a, as a kind of a high potential area, there was a um, sewage scheme <laughs> went through the town. So this is a rescue um, excavation. Um, and archaeologists called Devon Witty did some phenomenal work on that. It was metal detected. And they found 16 objects that might have been related to 1798. And now these have big significance here because um, we haven't got many battlefields that have been investigated in Ireland. It's a bit different from the United States. Um, metal detection is actually illegal in Ireland. You need a license and you generally need to be an archaeologist to do it. Um, so we don't have a huge amount of information on the battlefields, but they are very well preserved as a result of that. Um, so, so we're very fortunate. And as a result, then, um, these finds allowed us to look at this engagement. And we were able to say that the, this material, you can see some of the bullets um, and sand shot fired from an artillery piece and below that were found in this from a very small um, sample. And what's particularly significant about this is that it gives us a piece of information that the history didn't leave us. There was an attack by a guy called, it, it looks like you should say it, called Clough. I, I learned this very quickly in Wexford. You, for some reason that's known only to Wexford people, you actually pronounce this guy's name as Coakley, right? But in any event, um, this guy Coakley had led a United Irishman assault in the morning that had not succeeded, and it was never known why it didn't. It never pushed forward into the town. It, it just seemed to retreat. And later in the afternoon, a guy called Thomas Cloney led another attack into the same area of the town, and it wasn't known. Um, it, it was known it was heavy fighting there and that it failed. But it wasn't known um, that there was actually an artillery piece located there. They were attacking a group called the Clare Militia, but because one of the items we found from um, the, the archaeology was identified as coming 
a sand shot being fired from an artillery piece. It allowed us not only to put where the likely Clare militia defensive line was on the day of the battle, but the fact that they'd sighted a, a gun in the middle of the road. And if you have a bunch of guys running down a road into the face of, a, of an artillery piece, it kind of removes much of, of the doubt as to why they might not have been pressing home their attack in the morning. So from this tiny piece of information, really, you know, it's a really small piece of information. It's just showing you what, what it can tell us um, about about the site. So, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I just just that's amazing that you can take yeah written accounts of you know, uh, an event like that and then do battlefield archaeology on it and be able to confirm uh, or give you a better understanding of of those accounts that they wrote about. Um, and it's also amazing to me to just think of what a 1798 battle would have looked like in the sense of, you know, with men mostly armed with pikes, being able to keep up a, an assault and stuff like that seems pretty amazing because you know i know in many revolutionary war battles you know they'll get into firefights where they'll be you know exchanging volleys and whatnot you know but with the pike i, I feel like you can only do so much as far as either repulse an assault or, or charge into them so yeah yeah and i mean uras is a good example of, of of the pike being effective because they were able to repel a cavalry attack launched through those same fields actually um, using the pike, but uh, where, where where it's vulnerability, and in, in a lot of their early battles, um, they're effectively springing um, their engagements along confined roads um, and things like this um, in, in a in a in a fashion that really suits the type of tactics they were using. But where it became exposed is when you come to somewhere like Vinegar Hill, um, when you have this mass of troops moving in from multiple directions who are significantly superiorly armed than you are. Um, yeah. but, but what's remarkable about 1798 in particular is because of the limitations, say, of things like the pikes, they use the landscape, things like the ditches and the field boundaries that are still sitting all over Wexford today are actually the key features in the battlefield. They're the equivalent of going, if you go to somewhere like Vinegar Hill, the equivalent of going to the Western Front and seeing a trench, because it's, it is these ditches that are still being used today, largely still survive, are what they use to, to launch their attacks from, to seek shelter from, from fire. Um, and we found that again and again and again and again, that they're the key elements of these battlefields. And it's something that we didn't really know beforehand, um, the extent to which that element has survived. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, I mean, you almost have to do you know, and, and, you know, change your tactics to, to meet with whatever, whatever you have. Has anybody ever found a, like a pike head uh, in any of these archaeological sites? On, on the sites themselves, they're quite rare. There's some, um, but there's significant numbers that it's difficult because they consistently made pike heads through the 19th century. Um, indeed, yeah. it's quite incredible to think this, but actually in 1916, some of the insurgents were armed with pikes in the initial yeah. phase yeah. of the attack on Dublin Castle. Um, but uh, so, so it can be difficult to date them, but they are found. So, so there have been examples, for, exact, for example, of the pikes found in the thatch, which is kind of a famous historical trope, you know, that you would hide it in the thatch. Um, and blacksmiths were being targeted around this period because of course it was blacksmiths who were making the pike heads um very easy then to make them in a local scenario so there are surviving 1798 pike heads um and, and there are bits and pieces of materials that have been taken off different battlefields um that are now say in national collections like occasional swords muskets things like that 
So, yeah. yeah. But not, no. not, not still there in an archaeological context today. We haven't found one of them yet. But our, our work is, is, is kind of only getting going on it. Yeah, no, and, you know, and I hope, you know, all the viewers and everybody who's listening to this, I think it's, uh, I think things like this show the importance of preserving archaeological sites until, you know, you can do a, you know, a, a gridded uh, dig so you can actually get this information. Uh, because, you know, sometimes when you find bullets or things like that uh, randomly on a battlefield, that's great. But what information can you get from that? What story can you tell by having that information? Just... It's, it's impossible to overstress that point, Mark. Um, we, we'll see it now with Vinegar Hill. If the site um, had been not detected in the way that we did it, in terms of absolutely everything being down to the millimeter, the information that we got wouldn't be achievable. Even if we knew that stuff came from the field that they came in, the fact that we now know where we found material just, just allows us to tell an entirely different and more detailed story. It's, 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 it's vital that they are preserved. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, tell us a little bit about yeah Vinegar Hill. What, what... Okay, so so let's have a run through the archaeology of this then. So as I was saying, it's kind of the culmination of the campaign, and and with these United Irishmen um, groups, it, you're not just dealing with the body of men themselves. There's an awful lot of civilians um, there, and there, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of of them on Vinegar Hill. It's like a main United Irish encampment. So there are women and children up there. There are prisoners up there. Um, and as I was mentioning, the government, as June wore on um, and it suppressed the rebellion everywhere else, began to move in from different points of the compass to targeting Vinegar Hill, which is this high piece of ground just outside Enniscorthy. Um, the early morning hours, they wheeled their artillery in and they started about 4 a.m. to bombard the United Irish positions. And they do that for a number of hours to soften them up. Right. So you imagine, again, you have a lot of people who aren't terrifically experienced militarily. You have a lot of what you would call classic civilians. Um, there is all sorts of shell fire coming in on them for hours. Um, and the um, columns, um, uh, this is the longest day project, which was which was part of what we did. Um, it was a it was a, a, a group of um, of um, archaeologists came together. Um, working for Wexford County Council with the result, resulting book um, that came out of it. Um, but the, the um, I'll just move to a, I think I've skipped a slide of it, but we, we, we'll come to it in a second anyway. Um, the columns um, moved their artillery forward to an outer defensive line and the First artillery begins to enfilade the United Irishmen defensive position. So to enfilade, as, as I'm sure you know, but it, it's a fire. They managed to fire along the length of the United Irishmen's outer defensive line. And they fire anti-personnel um, rounds at them and kill somewhere between 50 and 60 of the United Irishmen um, in, in, in this area. And the United Irishmen um, defenses begin to 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 collapse inwards um, and at that point they launch forward their columns so a column had been coming through Enniscorthy town under Johnson again of New Ross um, fame um, and fought through the town down towards the bridge um, and a river there while other columns converged on the hill itself and there's a desperate rearguard action fought by the United Irishmen at the top of this hill to hold open kind of one 
play, one road that they can escape out of. Um, and in a nutshell, they succeed in doing that after some very intense fighting. And most of the, most of the people on the hill manage to escape, but the, the back of the rebellion is broken and there are um, ca- colossal numbers of casualties up on the hill as well. Uh, but it could have been a lot worse. One of the government columns that was supposed to close that road under Needham, another um, revolutionary war veteran, um, he didn't arrive in time. He actually got held up executing people further back the road. Um, so it goes anyway. Um, and he's he's always called the late General Needham after that because he, he fails to close off that retreat route. Um, but that's what breaks the back of the rebellion. But it, it becomes this, this massively iconic um, engagement um, as a result. So I think, yeah. Yeah, sorry. So this, this map shows you, this is our original battlefield map from 2007. Um, and the hill is on the right um, with the camp marked um, in, in hashers. And the blue line is the outer United Irishman defensive line. And you can see the red um, arrows are the assault, assaulting columns that come forward, government columns. There's a hill marked on a green hill and that's the approximate location where the artillery manages to enfilade the outer line. Um, and over on the left, quite a long way away, you can see where Johnson has moved into the town So um, and fights his way down towards the river. So quite a large engagement. Um, but when people go to Vinegar Hill, and, and you probably had this experience yourself, Mark, you, you kind of get captivated by the hill itself and all your focus goes to the very crest of the hill. And people tend to think that is the battlefield. Um, but, but when we were doing the analysis, we found, well, actually, the battlefield is an awful lot bigger than that. Um, it, it moves out into the different areas. Um, just some of the images. This is an area where Johnson comes in um, over on the left of our map here, this little piece of high ground um, that you can see. Um, and the bend in the road is where United Irishmen set up a small artillery piece to, to counter him. Um, the, the hill um, is crowned by the ruins of, of, a, of a windmill. Um, which was ruined in 1798, just as it's ruined today. And it's a real iconic structure. I'm sure you walked up to it when you were there. Um, but it, it crowns this height um, on Vinegar Hill. Um, so a surviving battlefield feature. But when you look all around there, all the, the ditches are massive, big earthen banks. They are ready-made fortifications. Um, so the entire landscape you're looking at is a surviving landscape. Um, this is the area of Green Hill. This is where the artillery enfiladed the outer line. So this, and you're looking at Vinegar Hill there, this is, this is how big the landscape is. Um, unfortunately, this site has been lost to development um, quite recently. Um, and you can see why they're picking locations like Vinegar Hill. This is the view from the top of it on a fine day. Um, and they tended to do this during the rebellion. The, these kind of concentration points tended to be high points where you had views for miles in every direction. Um, so, so it's a, it's an amazing locale. Um, we had we had a number of different things we were trying to do, and I'll, I'll kind of go through these briefly so we can get to some of the finds. But identify um, when we were doing the longest day project, identify the extent of the battlefields where the fighting happened, uh, what type of weaponry might be used, identify possible mass graves, um, and look to set standards for more research, because there hasn't been a huge amount of battlefield research done in Ireland. There's been some, but, um, but not, not a massive amount. Um, as I said, it has to be licensed, these surveys. It's illegal to, to metal detect in Ireland without a license, and you, you have to be an archaeologist to get a license. Um, and, and so 
we set out this really precise methodology of walking transects that were all flagged um, two and a half meter wide. We investigated everything um, that we were looking for lead bullets um, effectively to try and prove that the battlefield was there. Uh, GPS location of everything down to, 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 to millimeter accuracy. Um, and so our first, it's a while ago now, we're actually just completing some of the final analysis. You can see how long it can take. But um, our, the first time we went down there because of crops in fields, we had to split it in two. And we went down there in May 2017 and I was managing the field work and we spent days there um, and we targeted three fields that are marked here. And we found one bullet. <laughs> I was a worried man coming off that site in May 2017. Um, but we did find extensive evidence for the encampment. So evidence that people had been there in 1798, things like buckles and, and, and keys. Um, and so we had been looking at this area and we were marking all the fine spots here. Um, uh, and eventually we came back again in September, uh, the phase two survey. Um, this is near the crown of the hill. If you see on this left side image, kind of midway down the left-hand side, you can see the, the semicircular car park um, that's at the top of the hill that visitors to the site will go. They drive up a very narrow laneway that's between two of these fields here, um, which had been a concern because there was some suggestion, you know, it was difficult for people to access the site. Um, and, and this is a really kind of bad way of accessing the site and everything. Um, but as we found that laneway is absolutely key to events of the battle. These are the fields that we started detecting. You can see in the bottom right here, this long, slow slope up to the top of the hill. Um, and then almost immediately when we started going in, we started finding bullets everywhere. Um, unbelievable um, spread. They, they just came up again and again and again and again. Um, and because we were mapping Sorry, yeah. Mark. Yeah, I was just gonna say you can tell like whether they've been fired or dropped, uh, which helps you determine battle lines. Correct? Uh, precisely. In, in 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 many cases, you can. So you, we saw one there just a moment ago that was was very sheared and flattened. So it's fired probably at very close range, um, and it's hitting the, the upslope of the ground. So so a lot of the it was a lot of the, the balls were really, really highly impacted, which was suggestive of high impact at close range. Um, and what we got um, when we we mapped them all out is precisely this is battle lines. Um, you can see um, on the right hand side um, image here a cluster of black dots down the bottom here, which is showing a lot of the bullets. Um, unfortunately, the site just to the east of it, the green field to the east of us, is, was, was destroyed by development. Um, but the um, prior to this, as badly impacted at least. But what we have are lines of an advance, and it is the line of the Dundas Lake advance, um, which we had in there originally, if you see on the left-hand side, placed a bit farther to the north. But you can see there are two hills um, here. There's Vinegar Hill, and then there's another hill if you look at the height curves on the right hand side of, of the map. Um, what, what it turns out that the Lake Dundas force did was actually come up over the top of that hill and down through the saddle and up Vinegar Hill. And so they marched from right to left. Um, and as you know from um, the, the revolution, it's very difficult to align men um, to fire. 
uh, particularly when you're dealing, not all of these would have been massively highly trained. Um, some of them were militiamen. There were regulars there as well. But um, what we discovered from the archaeology was we detected on both sides of that laneway, but the intensive action is on the left side of this laneway that you access up. And what it is is the, the government troops are advancing up towards the top of the hill and they need something to align their flank on to keep in a straight line. And so they align themselves on that laneway that was there in 1798. So that the way you access that, it, the, the archaeology proved that that's a 1798 feature. And so the, all the action is happening on, on, on the other side of it. But we have bullets that are obviously dropped by nervous men who are trying to load cartridges um, in a line down at the bottom of this field as they move up um, to, 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 to the advance. Um, but so, so, I mean, it's an incredible view actually, because you, you're looking, if you look at this image on the right, you can see the windmill just in the middle of the ditch it, it is the highest point of Vinegar Hill. You can imagine a line of redcoats marching straight up this hill towards the United Irishmen. Um, but we didn't just get bullets. So what we found in these fields as well is the United Irishmen doing this desperate rearguard action, attempting to hold off the um, government troops to try and keep open this escape route. And so there's evidence of broken weaponry and things that kind of suggest hand-to-hand -hand close combat. So parts of pistols were found, parts of muskets that had broken off were found. Uh, really significantly, we got it, we, what we originally thought was K-shot. It's actually sand shot. But again, they are wheeling artillery up behind their advancing line to fire um, fire anti-personnel artillery into the faces of the United Irishmen from almost point-blank range. Um, and this is hot off the press. These are actually the first time these finds have ever been shown. <laughs> so this is a bit of a treat. But what we've been able to do here is actually, and it's the first time I'm aware of it happening in an Irish context, we can identify participants both on the United Irishmen and the government side. Two buttons that you see on the right-hand side here are from a unit called the South Cork Militia. Um, the South Cork Militia Regiment was not at Vinegar Hill. They did not fight at the Battle of Vinegar Hill as a unit, but one company did, the Light Company. The Light Companies from all the different militia units had been taken together and formed into a, into a, a group of Light Companies. And so we know that the Redcoats attacking up here, at least some of them, are the light companies. But we also know that some of the United Irishmen who are fighting them are from South Wicklow, because one of the objects that was dropped was a half penny that came from a Wicklow mine. So these tokens that they would use in places like mines, um, a mine company, we, we can even say where it's from, um, Orla Scully, who did the analysis of this. And I should mention Michael Cahill and Jen, Cahill, who, who did the military analysis as well. Um, Orla Scully did the non-military finds analysis um, and, and was able to find out that this token comes from the Cranbine miner, uh, miners, uh, 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 mine in South Wicklow. This is incredible, like to, to kind of, you, you're, all, you're, you're not far off of imagining faces here when you're thinking about where they're from. Um, and so here we have an instance of Irish versus Irish. Um, so, 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 so huge amounts of new information on the battlefield, not only because, and all of that is because we had ID'd exactly where everything was. If we didn't know that, we wouldn't know where the lines were. We wouldn't be able to say that the artillery pieces, we can, we can um, posit, for example, 
the probable locations of artillery pieces, which is what we're doing now um, in the analysis phase um, of it to say where they were actually putting the artillery to fire at the United Irishmen. We wouldn't know um, that there were South Cork militia facing off against these Wicklow men. Um, so yeah, that's that's. Um, I should note that a good friend of mine who passed away, F. Glenn Thompson, um, a while ago, who did this beautiful book, uh, used some of the illustrations in it for here um, on the uniforms of 1798. But that's the type of, of information that, that that we're getting out of it. No, that's uh, that's amazing. Um, one of the things we love at Emerging Revolutionary War is you know being in the spot where these battles took place. Um, and nothing can confirm it uh, to any truer sense than battlefield archaeology, like what you're talking about. Um, yeah, I mean, it completely, I mean, I know Vinegar Hill well, but it completely transforms your appreciation when you stand at the bottom of that slope and you look at that very specific field um, and a couple of fields to the left of it. And you know that, that quite a lot of people died in that exact spot. You, you know where people were standing. I mean, it's it's powerful, powerful stuff that, that as you say, only really archaeology can give you. Yeah, man. Like I said, I, you know, I visited back in 2013. But yeah, after after checking out this book and listening to you tonight, you know, got to go back. So uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's well worth it. It's well worth the trip. Yeah, yeah. go back and yeah, definitely recommend. Yeah, if anybody uh, in the future makes you know trips to go to Ireland or Europe, to definitely check out uh, if you get a chance. You know, like I said, I, I went there in 2013, and it's a uh, it's a very cool site and they got the the museum down there in the town that gives you a good overview of the 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 whole rebellion but specifically vinegar hill and what happened there um and uh but do you have any you know if somebody wants to learn more about 1798 or learn more about this part of irish history uh, anything else you would recommend they they check out the book, the book is certainly a very good start. Um, there are a number of books written about 1798. There, there's, um, um, yeah, there's books about Wexford in the war as well. Um, uh, there's too many for, for, for me to name now, but the, there's there's an awful lot of them. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you can, for all different levels um, of, of your in interest in it, you can kind of, you can kind of trace it. W one of the things that we're hoping will come out soon from our original Irish Battlefields project is, as I was mentioning it briefly earlier on, is going to be this volume. We're going to be doing a series of volumes, but hopefully it'll be in the next um, year or 18 months on 1798 battlefields, specifically looking at the battlefields. Um, but, but yeah, it's well, it's well worth. Um, and look at, looking up some of the, the material on the web as well. So for example, the, the website um, of, of the um, Knights and Rebels in, um, in Enniscorthy is, it's, and looking at all that is, is highly recommended. Yeah, what's uh, and what's Knights and Rebels? Is that that's uh, because of Enniscorthy in the in the Enniscorthy Castle, um, and then the the seventeen ninety eight Rebellion Center as well. So they both have different websites. But the, the Enniscorthy um, Castle is the Knights bit, and then the Rebels is seventeen ninety eight. Oh, so it's okay. kind of the Enniscorthy package, if you like. Yeah. Okay. So they, there's a lot going on in Enniscorthy. It's a good yeah. town. Um, uh, and also for any viewers who want to follow you, I saw on the, the things, if you want to just tell people how they, they want to follow your blog or any of the work. Yeah. 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 So if you're, if you're, in, if you're interested in the American civil war, you can get us at irishamericancivilwar.com. Um, and there's YouTube channels. There's some of the conflict archeology span stuff is on there. Actually, there's a, one of the YouTube, uh, on the YouTube channel that you can link from Irish American civil war. Actually, there's a talk that we gave during that second week of work. Um, that's up there 
um, locally. So it was kind of as we were finding the material. So you, you can you can you can catch that there. Um, yeah, Twitter at Irish ACW. Um, generally wandering around American Civil War stuff with occasional um, archaeology. Oh, and the other thing if for anyone who's interested um, in in the later um, archaeology as well of our own. Kind of revolution we, we also have a project called landscapesofrevolution.com um and there's a facebook page for that um and that's that's kind of examines things like the irish war of independence and the archaeology that relates to that so for anyone who can't get enough of revolutions <laughs> yeah, no, ireland certainly has plenty of them to uh <laughs> it does it does <laughs> well that's great yeah uh damien thank you so much for taking the time this evening to to talk with us um, folks who are interested more in the international legacy of the American Revolution, Emerging Revolutionary Wars having a symposium this uh, fall in September, last weekend in September, in Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, we're gonna have speakers talking about uh, not specifically Ireland, but other countries where that there's an international influence of the American Revolution. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and anybody who wants to also, you know, we talk about being at the site of, uh, of where the history happened. We got a bus tour coming up in November of Valley Forge and Monmouth. Uh, so, uh, get your tickets to come join us on that. That's going to be fun as well. Uh, but thank you, Damien. Appreciate your time coming here and, uh, no problem, Mark. Thanks. We'll, uh, hope everybody had a, a good St. Patrick's day week and, uh, we'll catch you again in, uh, in two weeks when we meet back here at 7 p.m. Thank you all uh, for checking us out.